Welcome back to the Graveyard Shift. I'm James Pugh. And I'm Sophie Power. Today, we're joined by a woman who went from helping to prevent crime with the police to launching her own business and has since been named as one of the top 100 inspiring British businesswomen in the UK. It's a big welcome to Sarah Giles of Newport Pet Services. Thank you. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. Um, so the last few years has been hugely challenging for small businesses, um, but entrepreneurship continues to grow and flourish. Um, how important do you think that is to the UK's economic recovery? I think it's really important. To be honest, if every small business in Britain just shut up shop tomorrow, the economy would collapse. Um, so I can't remember what the statistic is, but there's a lot more of us than there are of large businesses. Um, but the problem that I think in this country we seem to have is the uh, we seem to have this massive focus on um, big businesses and trying to get big business to invest in that. But actually, you could probably create more jobs and have greater investment if you looked at the small business community and started giving us more funding and more help and more direction um, so that actually, yeah, we could invest in like little high streets that need shops filling and um, providing jobs and apprenticeship opportunities and that sort of thing. So I think economic recovery, the focus needs to be on small business really, rather than trying to get your big guys in to start creating jobs and wealth in the communities really. I think that's that's something that's... I've got first-hand experience of really there. Yeah, definitely. I suppose particularly in places like Shropshire where oh, it's yeah. not always easy to attract the big businesses employing yeah. 500, 600 people. Exactly, because a lot of them will be like, well, I'll just go to Birmingham. I'll yeah. just invest in in, a, in somewhere in Birmingham. Um, but I think nowadays, certainly, the now that remote working is... Um, uh, just so common. And, and I, I think revitalising the small towns, um, particularly, I mean, if you look on the Welsh coast, for example, and, and, you know, you've got huge problems with people who are literally spending their entire lives living on benefits or you've got no young people um, living in those towns that they grew up in because there's no job opportunities for them. Well, remote working literally solves that problem overnight. So if you can keep people living in these small towns rather than referring to them as, as places that, you know, you just go to retire or you go to a holiday... Um, so all your coastal towns. And as well in Shropshire, to some extent, we, we also re rely heavily um, on tourism as well, particularly the Ironbridge Gorge area. Mm. It's completely dead in the winter months. So if you've got some sort of investment um, for those sorts of places, so they're not so reliant on tourism, um, because as we saw through the pandemic, that can be taken away in an instant. Um, so I think the focus on Remote working being an opportunity for people. Flexible working for uh, parents and, and caregivers is another big thing, I think is really, really important. Um, and those sorts of things will mean that people are able to sort of live literally wherever they want in Britain, not having to move to where the work is. Um, they can live in beautiful rural places like Shropshire. Um, I think we're very lucky that we have all of this on our doorstep. Um, and they're able to then sort of spend their money back in the local economy, which sort of boosts things. And I, and I think looking at that cycle, so even simple stuff, I think from a government and policy level, um, they really need to look at these sort of rural villages, small towns and say, right, okay, what's the broadband situation here? Have you got super fast fibre broadband? Because if you haven't, then your opportunity to apply for a remote working job is just gone, isn't it? Because if you haven't got broadband, you can't do anything about it. So I think that's something that um, really needs to be looked at. And as such then that gives small businesses more opportunities for growth because they're like, right, okay, if we've got the option to have remote workers, then we're not having to pay the overheads of a building to have people in the offices, to heat, heat the place, light the place, have the coffee machine installed, have somebody come, come around once a day to clean it and this sort of thing. So I think remote working um, from that perspective really is 
the, the way to go. Um, and I think that for a recovery point of view, we've really got to look at that and we've really got to look at um, sorting out um, really decent super speed broadband for all corners of the UK so that we've got that option to expand out. It doesn't matter where people live. That's that's kind of where I sort of I mean, the issue with it. broadband, I mean, yeah. it's been going on now for years and years and years, particularly in Shropshire. And it must, I mean, it's frustrating for people who live in Shropshire. Yeah. Uh, but for a business owner, I mean, you know, if you're unable to do business, you know, particularly as well as you would like, mm. for something really that seems small as broadband, it must be yeah. really frustrating. It is, because it is such a basic thing. And you know know yourself what it's like when you go somewhere that you're not expecting there to be zero signal Mm. and you're like, I can't get up the map. Apple Maps on my phone and it's just completely stuck because nobody has an atlas in their car anymore and you just think God, if the maps drop out, I'm done. I can't can't go anywhere. So just simple stuff like that. So to, I can't imagine living somewhere where you literally can't even do the basics, like pull the mapping apps up on your phone because you don't have enough bars uh, and, and enough 4 or 5G to do it. So um, I think that's something that's, from a business point of view, that just seems to be rather basic to me. Um, so I think that's something that definitely needs to be addressed from a government level um, and the investment in that infrastructure. So if, God forbid, another pandemic sort of slapped us all in the chops again, well, we're all set up for remote working then. Ooh that we could just carry on as before, business as usual. And hopefully, if it did happen again, I'm really hoping it doesn't, um, <laughs> but if it did happen again, it wouldn't have such a massive dent in the economy like it did um, three years ago. So, And what's your sort of opinions on sort of investment um, at a local level and national level mm. on you know, for small businesses? You know, do you think we always want more investment, more money, but yeah. do you think it's you know good at the moment? Do you think it could be improved? You know, I think that there really does need to be a bit more sort of um, ground floor investment um, and funding opportunities, not loans, because I mean anyone can walk into a bank and get yeah. this loan, to be honest. But then you've got to try and pay it back, and and if your business isn't doing as well as you'd like, you're then stuck with it. Particularly as a sole trader, you're then liable for any kind of debts and all that sort of thing. So I think that there should be, provided you know, you've got a good business idea and you're not coming in with something completely daft, um, there should be real sort of investment opportunities for people to say, look, I've got this business idea. I want to get it off the ground. What funding's available to me? There is funding available for things. Um, the big thing at the moment seems to be uh, renewable energies, making mm. things green and stuff like that. But if you're not in that particular industry, like, for example, I work in pet care. That, I, I, I mean, There's only so much you can do, really. Yeah, I yeah, we, we, I mean, for example, we plant a tree for every invoice we raise. Um, so we've got a partnership with um, a lovely sort of community organisation called um, Ecology. And so they plant trees in like Kenya and Madagascar and places like that. So for every invoice we raise with a customer, we have a tree planted. And we also use plastic-free dog poo bags just to try and reduce our impact on the environment. But outside of that, there's not a lot much more we can do, really. Um, so th- there's a lot of investment and funding for the renewable side of things, and like, for example, factories, and that's trying to make them greener, work off solar panels, which is great if you're in an industry that can take advantage of that. If you're not, if you're an accountant working from home or something like mm. that, there's not a fat lot you can do. That. So I think um, there is, a, there needs to be a lot more scope um, and sort of widen the net into what funding is available um, for other industries that can't take advantage because as we just said remote working and that Mm -hmm. if you don't have a factory or a business premises or an office that you're working out of you're working out of because I work out of a I call it my shed it's it's not (laughs) it's um it's a it's a little wooden building that my partner built for me in my backyard because I had to sacrifice my office in the house for a baby so (laughs) I mean because we couldn't put the baby in the 
Chad, we're not really, you know. I know. They, they, that was a bad thing, apparently, to suggest. So, yeah, um, the other half insisted that I, I move my base of operation out into the garden. So that's where I work. Um, so, yeah, if you're doing like what I do and working from a, a shed in your garden, then, um, you know, you haven't got the opportunity to take advantage of the sort of um, those sorts of funding available. So I think there, do, there does need to be a bit more done, really. And again, to encourage people into small business and entrepreneurship, um, because... It's not something that is massively encouraged in, in schools and, and that sort of thing, I think. But I think if you know that there's the funding options there, um, then, yeah, I think that's that's um, certainly a, a legitimate sort of route that people can go, can go down for, um, for their futures, really. Um, we're going to come back to business, but mm. we just wanted to sort of touch on your uh, uh, career with West Mercia Police. Um, yeah. You spent more than eight years I did, uh, with yes. West Mercia Police and mm. held several positions. Can you sort of tell us a little bit more about how you got into the police? Oh and yeah, so your roles. <laughs> well, I, I, oh, well, both my parents are police officers, so I, um, I kind of grew up in a policing family, and a couple of my uncles were police officers as well. Um, and then, so obviously, growing up, we always had police officers in and out of the house for, for tea and this sort of thing. I grew up as family friends, um, and then. I've kind of grown up with the kids of those police officers who were sort of my age and of my generation. Um, and then I, I went to university because I, I, I did police cadets for two years when I was in the sixth form, um, which was great and really gave me um, a good grounding. So it's a bit like scouts, but for police and a bit more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to go to like do training stuff at police headquarters and all that down in Worcester. And it, and it was a good laugh. And I'm, and I'm still friends actually to this day with a lot of people, and this was 20 years ago, that I was in police cadets with, which was great. Um, and so I then went off to university at age 18 um, to go and do a psychology degree. And my original plan was I was going to go and be a clinical psychologist and I was going to do a PhD and all this sort of thing. And then I graduated in 2009 we uh, right into the middle of the credit crunch and everything just going horribly wrong. <laughs> so there wasn't any sort of opportunities for me to do any kind of postgrad work. In those days, you couldn't get a student loan for postgrad. You either had to have it funded or fund it yourself, neither of which was an option. Um, and so I just sort of went, oh. Um, and I ended up going and working for the council um, it, it, for a few months while I tried to work out what to do. And even then, I was lucky to get that job because there was there was no postgrad opportunities anywhere, no um, jobs anywhere, and I ended up um, in this random job where I just got really fat because I just sat and ate, ate the contents of the uh, vending machine <laughs> at my desk. Uh, and to this day, I, I couldn't actually tell you what it was we were expected to do because this was just before they brought in all the massive cuts to councils. So there was still a lot of dead wood sitting around, and <laughs> my job title was information officer, and I. Yeah. This no, day you don't know what it meant. No. From what I could surmise, about once a year, the GCSE results would be um, sort of produced and we'd all have to get very excited for a day and um, put it all in a pretty pie chart for the uh, chief executive of the council to go, ah, and then put, and that was about it. And the other 364 days, they couldn't work out what we were supposed to do. So I ended up being very adept and uh, very knowledgeable about current affairs because I just kept refreshing the BBC News website <laughs> all day long and then just eating the contents of the vending machine. And I was like, God, I can't live like this. And then one day my dad phoned me up and said, um, listen, they've got some jobs going in the police control room. Um, so they, they, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very hard job to be fair. Um, so if you dial 999 or 101, police non-emergency number, they're the people you get through to. Um, so it's it's a bit of a dual role. So you do kind of like call taking, um, but then you also do the dispatching on the radio, so dispatching police officers to incidents. 
And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. And Dad was like, well, do you know what? If, if you get in, you can then apply internally to the police because they tend to advertise internally for roles first. Had you considered the police before now? Yes, career, um, I had. I wanted to be a police yeah. officer when yeah. I was a kid. I wanted to be just like my parents. And then I, I wanted to, and then I joined the police cadets and it put me right off. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I couldn't get over the way the public viewed you for being in a uniform. I find that really, really difficult because they didn't see a human being. They saw scum of the earth in a uniform and that really kind of messed with my head a bit and I couldn't, I, I thought, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. Um, so I still wanted to help people mm. um, and I was doing my A-level in psychology at, at the time and so I decided to go and do a psychology degree, which as it happened, turned out to be quite a good thing because it was quite useful for, for policing because it is... Um, a quite an adaptable degree that you can use to a lot of situations, including running a business, actually. So it turned out to be the best degree I could have done, really. Um, and so, yeah, um, so I ummed and ahed about um, applying for this job in the control room, but I, I couldn't sit at this desk at the council just eating my body weight in Doritos anymore. So I was like, <laughs> right, we're going to have to do something. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, and I got this job in the police control room. And um, so that, I was packed off down to police headquarters for a few weeks for like intensive training because um, it's not just um, learning how to deal with stressful situations on the phone and really quite intense situations, dispatching officers on the radio because in that job, everybody's screaming at you. The public is screaming at you on the phone. The police officers are screaming at you on the radio. You've got no respite and you're sat there doing a 10-hour shift. So um, the training has to do that, but then training has to do all the systems as well. So in police control rooms, I mean, back in those days, you had like about three or four... Um, screens in front of you and you had to keep an eye on all of the screens and you had a pedal that you could put your foot on to be able to talk through the radio and you had to touch type as well so there's a lot going on um, and out of the four of us that were recruited in that intake only two of us stayed on because the other two didn't make the grade um, so that was a really stressful job um, my third day on the job on my own um, sadly a girl phoned in on the non-emergency number and um, I had to listen to her bleed to death because she'd um, she used to attempt to take her own life. And that, and I was only 22. Mm. And, it, and it's a lot. It really is a lot. Mm. And we don't talk about this. Because, no. um, unfortunately, the people who work in the police control room, that I mean, they all deserve knighthoods because you're never speaking to anybody in a good situation. You never, ever... People aren't just phoning up to talk about their day and tell you that they've just got a new puppy. It's not. It's always people on the absolute worst day of their lives. And, and I don't it's suppose horrible. you get to see kind of the outcome either. I often think that about ambulance control yeah. rooms. You um, kind of... You yeah. can be with somebody at their worst moments yeah. and you never will kind of know how that ends necessarily. Exactly, yeah. And and it is so hard. And and then you're doing shift work as well, so you're bloody knackered all the mm. time. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's a lot. Um... But what I will say for that environment is there is a lot of camaraderie and that is what gets you through. Um, so, you know, I worked with some great teams, some great people. Um, the police officers on the uh, on the edge of the radio, you mirrored their shift patterns so you'd have the same bobbies on your shift every time, which was quite good. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, was, that, that was a really intense job. I mean, I only did that for just over two years. I mean, some people in that control room have been doing it for 20. I... I anybody does that job for for so many long decades because it is just so intense and um and how do you unwind really from that in an evening when you get home after that you know well I'd come, shift. i i would come home i used to listen to the shipping forecast on radio four because i i lived in telford at the time and the police control room was in Shrewsbury before they closed it and moved its headquarters um so i used to so when i finished half nights at like about one in the morning 
um, I would drive home and listen to the shipping forecast because I got no idea what it means. Because unless <laughs> unless you live in a coastal family, you don't, do you? Well, it's what's just, thinking that? You yeah. listen to the shipping forecast and you're in Tugford. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's on Radio 4, so it's, anyone <laughs> yeah. can listen to it. So I'd be driving home listening to the shipping forecast because it would just sort of lull you into like yeah. this, um, <laughs> almost like allow you to zone out. Yeah. And by the time I'd sort of driven home and 20 minutes later, I felt a lot better. Wow. And then I would, and then some nights, like particularly Friday or Saturday nights when you just hadn't been able to stop, mm. I'd come home and I'd watch... Um, things like the sci-fi channel with things like um, Sharknado and uh, Mega Shark versus Crocosaurus <laughs> and things like that because it, and other, you know, it's the yeah. only way you can kind of like wind down yeah. from that. That's what I, I, I find with that. So, um, so yeah, so there was some absolutely terrible um, sort of like Z-list celebrities in these awful movies. But it's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I used to do. And then, so I did that for about uh, two years or so. And then um, I applied internally within the police for a... Um, job as a witness care officer. So that's like looking after victims and witnesses um, to help them go to court. So this is like the complete opposite end of where you're from, the control room, because the control room dealing with like the the now, this is what happened, this is the incident that's happened. By the time you get into the witness care unit, you're dealing with, right, the police officer's been out, they dealt with the incident, this is now going through the systems to go to the court. Um, so you're dealing with everybody from uh, victims of theft right up to the families of murder victims. Um, you've got victims of sexual assault and rape and that sort of thing. Um, so that was, um, again, quite difficult because you'd have to read through the um, the full paperwork. So the MG5 is like what the uh, police officers write. Um, so the sort of particulars of the incident. So you've got everything in there, you've got all your witness statements in there. So you'd have to go through and you have to understand, you'd be given a caseload, a bit like a social worker, and you'd deal with your cases until they were dealt with and you got an outcome at court. Um, so I was taught to write victim impact statements and stuff like that. So I would help um, victims and, and, and witnesses to uh, victims of crime write an impact statement, which would then go to the court, which could influence, not always, but it could it can influence mm. how the, the judge um, hands down a sentence. So I did that, and um, and then the job of crime prevention officer came up, and I was like, "Oh, I could really do this." And traditionally, it was a job that was normally given to a retired police man, and um, I, I ended up getting it. And um, so I was the first female crime prevention officer for West Mercy Police, oh, oh. Um, which was quite good. And um, it, I uh, went off to the College of Policing um, up in Leeds. Did um, I think it was over a month's worth of training in total um, in crime prevention and uh, architectural liaison. So um, there was kind of three strands to the crime prevention officer's role. So you would you basically you're the go-to person in, for crime prevention for the division. So I was like a one-person department. West Mercy Police is fit, split into five divisions. So there was only one crime prevention officer per division. So there was only five of us in total. The other four were all retired policemen, and then there was me up at Telford. Um, and, um, so you'd have, uh, the basic crime prevention stuff you do. So like victims of burglary, you can go out and speak to them and give them advice on how to prevent it happening again. You'd have police officers sticking their head around your office door and saying, oh, I've just been out to this job. What would you suggest we could do with this to try and make the house more secure and that sort of thing? Um, I'd work a lot with the domestic abuse department, so PVP, which is a protecting vulnerable people unit. So they deal with things like your domestic abuse, um, honour-based violence and all that sort of thing. And I would sit on the monthly MARAC meetings with the um, detective inspector um, where they'd discuss uh, domestic abuse cases with other professionals like social workers, uh, midwives, that sort of thing. Um, so I would then have to go into domestic abuse victims' houses to 
make the house secure to prevent the perpetrator from getting back in and causing them harm. Uh, which will be very, very stressful. If you get that wrong, somebody dies. Um, and so that, that unfortunately, was probably the biggest bit of my role. That was the stuff that I dealt with mostly day to day. And then the other part of our role, which was quite interesting when my psychology degree came in, um, was designing out crime. So I would sit down with um, like architects and people building new houses and housing estates and go through the plans with them and um, help them to sort of alter the architectural plans and build in a way that actually reduces crime. So human beings, we're quite easy to ma- manipulate through the built environment. So for example, um, in a cul-de-sac, your burglary rates naturally go down because there's one way in, one way out. Mm. Um, human beings don't like to feel trapped. So we're more likely to commit a burglary if we can get in one way and out the other in a street because you feel like you've got an escape route. Whereas with a cul-de-sac, you feel too confined and you don't want to commit crime there. So um, it's like a balancing act between making housing estates and and that nice places for people to live, but not very nice places for criminals to commit crime. So I used to do that. And that's really interesting because the um, the effects of that will be seen generations after course, we're yeah. dead. Um, and so that that's really, really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed that sort of aspect of things because even just simple stuff with which way around the houses are. So if you have your houses with the... Uh, driveways at the front to park your vehicle at the front of the house. Your instances of vehicle theft and, and damage to vehicles goes down mm-hmm. compared to those housing estates where they have like a car parking court at the rear of the houses. Yeah. The vehicle theft rates go up because they're more anonymous. Um, people feel more comfortable walking around like a communal parking yeah, area course. and causing damage to vehicles than they do walking onto somebody's drive where there's a risk that somebody might run out the front door and ask you what you're doing. So um, that's that's quite interesting. Just so simple tweaks can like mm. drop your, your rates of crime on a housing estate. Live on a street we can get in either end and yeah. my drive is to the side. Well, <laughs> to the side is not as bad as a car no, parking course no. at the rear. Uh, do you no. have like a, a window at the side of your house? Yeah. yeah. There you go, then and that's fine. And to be fine. fair, we're military, so we should be fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're I, on an yeah. estate that's off base, but I feel like the Yeah, if you guys are experiencing a high crime rate, then you're being yeah, let down by the military there, there. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> somebody needs to chat to you. And to be fair, the military police, they do have crime prevention officers. Too. Yeah, I yeah, trained yeah. with a few. So, um, yeah, they, they, somebody should, you need to speak to yeah, somebody. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just that I think you need to check. Yeah. So, yes, that was my policing career. And then I worked briefly after Westminster Police for Secure by Design. Um, which is run by the London Mayor's Office of Policing and Crime. So, like, uh, providing crime prevention advice and um, sort of encouraging industry to make their crime prevention products to a certain standard. So things like locks and padlocks and all that sort of thing, so that um, they can be given a police preferred specification. And then when when that contract came to an end, I was like, well, I, oof, I've always had in the back of my mind I wanted to run a pet care business. So now's the time and that's what I did <laughs> so, so yeah it's like a rundown of my CV I'm really sorry <laughs> no no that's what we that's what we love yeah. which leads yeah. us nicely on to <laughs> I love that segue that's amazing yeah, that's really so yeah how was your business born what was the idea behind it hmm well I'd, as I said I'd long had in the back of my head the idea to do a pet care business um, because I thought well <sighs> I regard my pets as family and I'm quite sure other people do as well. Um, and so caring for animals um, when people are away on holiday or walking dogs or people are at work, I thought, yeah, there must be there must be a market for that. And I always sort of had it in the back of my head and never really done anything about it. And then um, when I finished working for Secure by Design, I was like, hmm, kind of between employment now, so what do I do? So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. 
So I think I had about five quid left in my bank account at this mm-hmm. point. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to do something or starve to death. So um, <laughs> I sort of started, I, I looked into it and I was like, right, I'll get some insurance in place. Okay, that's fine. And um, I started off walking dogs and then offering to feed people's cats when they're on holiday. And we and built it from that. And I was doing side work in like pubs and stuff at the, at the time just to try and make ends meet and that sort of thing as well. Um, and yeah, so we've... Um, I started off doing that and it was a real shock to me because I, um, the pet care industry is a bit like the Wild West because there's there's like literally no regulation at all. And coming from a police background, but of course, yeah. everything is black and white. You can't even sneeze without having to write it down. And it it was completely alien to me. And I was like, oh, no, no, there must be, must be more. No, I'm not missing anything. Okay. Um, so yeah, so... Um, the, that That's the thing that I find really quite difficult sort of... Um, because there was no kind of uh, regulatory body I could go to to say, right, can I have some advice mm. on on this? So I, I literally, for want of a better word, I had to wing it. Mm. I, I had to wing it setting up the business because there was no precedent for how it was done. Um, and so I came into the industry and I started looking around at competitors and, and, and what was about at the time. And I was like, well, this is very pink and fluffy, isn't it? <laughs> um, it? A lot of it was being set up as a bit like a, a hobby kind of scout sort of bobber jobbing type attitude, people operating without any insurance. And I was like, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. So I got insurance in place. I got myself DBS checked. Um, even though I'd worked for the police for years and was counter-terrorism cleared, I still needed a DBS certificate to sort of show to people. Um, there, and, um, and so I started from there and, and I kind of marketed it as, because um, I remember when I had my logo done, um, I was like, I don't want anything with paw prints in it because every single dog walker, dog groomer, vet, <laughs> every single person in this industry has got bloody paw prints in it. I mean, the occasional hoof print just to balance things out, you know. But no, it's, and I said, I don't want that. I don't want it. Um, so the Newport Pet Services logo, um, it went for a very Art Deco-y kind of style because um, I'm a bit of a history nerd and that sort of thing. So I thought it kind of reflected me a bit. Um and avoided studiously paw prints. We had a dog and a cat either side <laughs> of the words Newport Pet Services instead. Um, and so I started looking around at um, the competitors and that. And again, the, the prices they were charging, I was like, well, how is anybody living on this? Um, charging things like £5 for a half hour's dog walk and this sort of thing. And I'm just like, well, that's how you factored in your fuel. And, and also it's not even minimum wage when you talk. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, I, it just wasn't... Um, it, 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 I was, it, it just showed, um, shone a massive gap and a massive sort of spotlight on sort of what was missing in the industry. And at this point, so, were they just offering the basic services like dog yeah, walking? Yeah, dog walking, cat feeding, visits, yeah, um, yeah, mucking muck out that, horses, that, that sort yeah. of thing, yeah. And so, um, so I built the business on sort of the idea that we are professional, uh, we're reliable, and I kind of, you know, leaned quite heavily on the fact that I used to work for the police because immediately... People are like, well, you're trustworthy and that sort of thing. And then obviously I said, you know, we've got a DBS check as well. So, you know, if you've got to give, because people are giving you keys to their houses. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, um, nobody ever, people hand you keys to their houses, nobody ever asks what you're going to do with them. <laughs> ever. And it's terrifying. Yeah, and as an ex-crime prevention officer... Why aren't you it, asking this? I know, yeah. So I put it in my as well, because that's the thing, I, I did contracts for, for people to sign. So we mm. have all the information for their... Um, for their pet and like just simple stuff like what vet is it registered at and all this sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I would actually put that, you know, we, we put a tag on the, um, 
the key with just the pet's name on. So at least if ever it is sort of stolen or I'm mugged or something, people are just going to end up with like a, a load of keys that say things like Fido and mittens on it and this sort of thing. Um, and um, but our business insurance covers lock changes for any clients as well in the event that that was uh, to happen. Um, and the keys are kept in a locked key safe. Uh, we only take out the keys with us that we need that day and this sort of thing. Um, nobody ever asks, ever, not once. In nearly five years in business, anyone ever asks what I do with their keys, so I put it specifically in the um, uh, in the contracts. Um, and so, yeah, we, we drew up contracts and um, sort of kind of approached it with this very kind of professionalism. And I felt that's what was lacking when I was looking around at the competitors at the time. As I said, it was too pink and fluffy. It was too kind of like, I'm doing this as a bit of a hobby, so I might feed your cat while you're in Tenerife. I might forget, kind of thing. <laughs> and I was a bit like, I, oh, I don't feel comfortable with this. So that's kind of how I set it up. And so consequently, off the back of that, so my original plan, and I remember speaking to my dad about it and saying, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And fully, I like bracing myself for the barrage of criticism that's going to come my way. And it didn't come. And dad went, no, I think that's a really good idea. And I spoke to mum about it as well. She's like, no, I think that's a really good idea. And I was like, okay, um, all right, let's do this. So and I spoke to dad and said, look, would you be willing to come and work for me when you retire from the police proper? And he said, yeah, that would be great. So I assumed I would just work alone for a few years until dad retired and then he would join the business and we'd do it as a duo. Um, so eight months in, I was like, shit, I'm busy. <laughs> I, so I'd become the victim of my own success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just had more bookings coming in than I could cope with on my own. And I was just like, I... Because the problem is, particularly with dog walking, everybody wants their dogs walked at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. Um, so between the hours of 11 and 2, you're running around like an idiot trying to get all these these dogs walked. Um, and I was like, well, I need to maybe bring somebody on. So I, I hired my first uh, member of staff uh, eight months in. And we built it from there. So we've now got... Um, there's a team of six working mm-hmm. for me. Um, including Dad, who finally retired from the police last uh, March and joined the business then um, after 42 and a half years, bless him, in the job. And then he he came to do uh, dog walking and uh, and cat sitting, which is a great job for a retired police mm. officer because they like to stay active, oh, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it suited him rather well. And then uh, we went down the route of um, tracking dog walks. So when I was looking at other competitors, I remember thinking, how do you know that they walked your dog? how do you know that they've visited your mm. cat? Because you're just going entirely on trust, really, that you've paid this person Bullshit. to come along. I mean, how do you know they've not just nipped the dog out in the garden, let it do its business, and then put it back mm. in the house and charge you for an mm. hour's walk? So um, I was like, right, there must be a way of dealing with this. So then we implemented it. Um, we've bought some software called Doggy Logs, and it's an app that the staff all have on their phones. And it uh, means that they hit start walk, GPS tracks all of the walks, and they hit end walk, and it sends an alert through to the customer's email address to say, Fido has had his walk. This is the GPS route he's taken. This is how many wheeze and poos he's done, if you definitely need to know. Um, (laughs) And and also any photos we've taken along the way, it gets uploaded to that, and they can pull them off and keep them if they want. So um, a few of the staff take really, really good photos. Mine don't. Um, (laughs) I I don't have... (laughs) not, Not great with photos. Dad will randomly take pictures pictures of birds of prey scene um and um but occasionally i mean yeah some of the girls take really really good pictures so and the the customers love it and then the flip side of that is that actually um it works quite well from a lone worker's perspective um because obviously both dad and i uh, ex-police lone worker safety is something Mm. that's quite um uh, prominent in our minds i mean even just looking back at things like the susie lamplu case in the 80s and stuff just 
lone worker safety is something really, really quite important. Um, so the nice thing about the Doggy Logs app is not only is it giving the customer the reassurance that we've done the work that we said we were going to do, it means that from the admin side of Doggy Logs, I can log in and I can see at any moment of the day where anybody is and what their last mm. GPS point was. So if I can see that Shauna's GPS point hasn't moved for two hours, then I know that there's a problem. Yeah. And that's roughly where we need to start sending the cavalry. Um, so it, it gives them the reassurance that we as a company care about them and then we're not mm. just packing them off with a handful of keys and letting them loose and just leaving them to it and that we don't care that they get home at night. Um, so there, there's that. And then um, we use a... Um, another piece of software called PetSitter Plus, which again, the staff will have on their phones. Um, so it's all GDPR compliant and password protected because they have to use their fingerprints to get into it and this sort of thing. And that has got their diaries on and um, they will click on the name of the dog or cat in their diary and it will give them all the information that they need. So his leads are hung up behind the back door. He's got a biscuit on the counter ready for him after his... So all of the information is there. Um, I mean, one of my staff... She came from a different pet care business and she said, oh my God, this is amazing because my old company just used to write things on the back of post-it notes. <laughs> and as ex-police and so with like all the policies and stuff that I'm used to having written down, that was just like, this is just actually making me feel really anxious. Can you not talk to me about that? Um, so yeah, um, so we've got all that in place. So literally everything runs like a well-oiled machine and that's kind of how I like things. Um, so yeah, we, we've, uh, and the customers love that and that's kind of our selling point really um, mm. with with the doggy logs, like we GPS track for all our, all of our walks, and even the cat visits. Um, obviously, the GPS point doesn't move because we're staying in the house, but it means that while you're away on holiday, if you're lying on your sun lounge and you email pings, you can see, ah, oh, Fluffy's been visited today. Um, somebody's gone in, and any pictures we've taken of him, and all that. And at least it gives you that reassurance that they're being cared for. Um, I mean, if you look at us on Google, all our Google reviews quite often mention that everything being tracked is something mm. they really like. So yeah. I was kind of. Glad that we spent the money and investing in that, really, um, which I thought was a good, good spend. Mm. Yeah. Aside from dog and cats, is it sort of any pet that you're willing to look after, or you? Uh, yeah, within reason. Within reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We do a bit of horses and ponies, yeah. um, and oh, we have quite a lot of bunnies as well, uh, small yeah. animals, bunnies and uh, guinea pigs and stuff like that. Um, things like hamsters and stuff we don't tend to do because I think people tend to physically pick up the hamster cage mm. and give it to a relative yeah, or neighbour yeah, to look yeah. after. Um, and, oh, and normally people have like a random goldfish that you've got to sprinkle some flakes in for as well when you go and <laughs> feed the cat or the rabbit. And so, so yeah, we do that. And, and we do a bit of horses and ponies as well. So, yeah. I read you do, is it pet chaperoning at weddings? Mm. Um, yeah, that's quite I nice. I am you haven't, very excited. No, you, <laughs> you haven't had any weird... Pet that's come to the, you know, that they wanted to the wedding. Oh, like, no, it's normally dogs. just dogs. Just, it's it's just, just dogs, dogs yeah. yeah. Nobody's ever asked for anything. The goldfish to come at the aisle. Oh, the yeah, put a little dicky bow on <laughs> yeah. him. It'd be great, yeah. No, it's normally dogs. It's yeah. normally childless people in their 30s yeah. um, who want their dogs at their yeah. wedding. Um, so, <laughs> just checking, um, yeah. that's it. I have visions of ponies walking down the aisle with the ring wrapped Yeah, you'd have to... You'd have to have a horse van to transport it. That's the other thing. Yeah, um, we don't have one of those. But no, we uh, yeah we do pet chaperoning to weddings, which is yeah. quite nice because yeah. um, the logistics of that are if you want your dog in your wedding photos, everyone you know is at your wedding. So mm. who do you get to bring it? And everyone's all in their best clothes and that, and they don't want the dog jumping up at them and, and getting mud all over the bride's dress and that. So what do you do? You hire a pet chaperone. So that's what we do. So everything um, for those jobs, it's all tailor made. Um, so quite often the dog will be staying at like a local kennels or something. We'll go and 
collect it from the kennels, take it to the wedding venue. They'll normally let us know roughly when the photographer's plan to start because just to avoid stress for the dog, we don't want to keep them there the whole day. We want to get them in, photos done, get them out because um, otherwise it just gets a bit too much for some of them. Um, and yeah, so we just go along, hang around while the photographer does what they need to do and then take the dog away again. So that's quite nice. So you get to be involved in people's special day and stuff. So but speaking of puppies, Sorry, there was yeah. obviously a huge boom in dog ownership over lockdown. Oh, man, yeah. Mm-hmm. With work from home, lots of people that maybe wouldn't have otherwise got dogs, mm-hmm. got dogs because they were at home a lot more. Yeah. We're now seeing dogs ending up in rescue centres in their droves. Yeah. What's your kind of opinion on the whole situation at the moment? Do you think oh, that we're going to have, have a generation? How long have you got? Um, yeah, it, oh, it's been a complete nightmare. Like the pandemic, like a lot of industries, has changed things. Um, like you said, um, the boom in dog ownership just skyrocketed mm-hmm. absolutely skyrocketed I, I do I did a bit during the lockdowns to try and make ends meet I did a bit of pet transport work for mm-hmm. dog breeders mm-hmm. um, a puppy that would normally have cost three and a half grand they were able to charge ten mm-hmm. um, it, people were just paying I, mean, I don't know where they were getting their money from um, but yeah. yeah that people were just paying over the odds for any dog mm-hmm. so consequently dog thefts went through the roof as well yeah um, which made things really quite dicey for a good six months mm-hmm. um, because people were just yeah, because they if you if you steal a litter of ten puppies mm. and you can get ten grand a piece, of course, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's mad money. It yeah. really is. So that was really quite a scary period at one point. Um, but I mean, what's more scary is so you got issues with you got so like your puppy farms and things like that, mm-hmm. and people irresponsibly breeding, which mm-hmm. is tantamount to animal abuse, yeah. and it is. And obviously, the RSPCA do some wonderful work in identifying and closing down puppy farms. Mm-hmm. The other thing that kind of concerns me is. Your home breeders. So people who aren't professional breeders registered with a kennel club, they've just got a nice bitch with a nice temperament. And they're like, oh, well, we'll give her a litter of puppies because she's just she's just a nice dog. And I think we'll, we'll let her have one one's litter before mm-hmm. we have her spade and this sort of thing. And these people are breeding dogs with zero experience. They've not had any testing done on the dog's DNA. Yes, she's mm-hmm. got a lovely temperament, but is she a carrier for another kind of disease, particularly yeah. if she's a purebred dog? Mm-hmm. Most pure breeds have got some sort of inherent illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so any of your brassophilic um, breeds, like your, yeah. your Frenchies, your Bulldogs, yeah, anything yeah. like that, you know, a lot of them have got sort of breathing and nasal issues and that sort of thing. Um, so there's no kind of testing done there. So they breed it because, oh, well, you know, she's a good dog, bless her, and we'll, we'll breed mm-hmm. off her and, and that sort of thing. <sighs> yeah, and my then, first rescue, we think, oh from what we can get, yeah. we got him at 18 months and he um, had... He'd already had yeah. all of the nose surgery and um, he'd had yeah. his nostrils widened. And essentially, if we didn't have him, he would have been put down. Yeah. And we think he came from a puppy farm. And that's yeah. why, because he was poorly. That's so, it. Yeah. But the problem is with her home breeders, is and particularly with the the, um, the the price of puppies going through the, the roof, mm. is again, you think, oh, well, I can probably sell these for a few grand a piece. Yeah. But ultimately, it's only profitable if nothing goes wrong. Mm-hmm. If you've got puppies that are born with issues if the bitch gets into difficulty and you've got to call mm-hmm. the vet out mm-hmm. um you know you could be spending tens of thousands of pounds before you've even parted with a puppy for sale um and then who are you selling them to just people who want a puppy mm-hmm. um so we, we've ended up so now with a, a plethora mm-hmm. of just random puppies ended up in random homes yeah um with people who like you say oh all of a sudden i'm now remote working for the rest of my existence mm-hmm. um I'll just get a dog. Never mm-hmm. considered getting a dog before, but this is what I'm going to get. Because of the lockdowns, you then had 
people that weren't taking their puppies to things like puppy training classes, mm-hmm. I'd always recommend you take your puppy to puppy school. Mm-hmm. I'd always recommend you use a dog trainer that is force-free so they don't use any equipment or methods yeah. that cause fear, pain or distress to a dog. Okay, so so we're accredited by the Pet Professional Network, for example, because mm-hmm. we're a force-free pet care provider. Yeah. So we like don't even use like slip collars or anything like yeah, that on yeah. dogs just because of the... Like, um, yeah, yeah, and 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 like so, we we use like clip-on leads mm-hmm. and stuff like that, rather than anything that can like yeah. pull on their necks and stuff, choke chains and all that sort of stuff. We we, yeah. we don't use. So, and again, the same for the uh, training side of the industry. We always recommend people use force-free dog trainers. The lockdowns, it just turns into the complete wild west. You ended up with people having dogs with no training, no manners, basically, and they were just left to run wild. And then all of a sudden, after, what, 12, 18 months, Boris was like, okay, people can start going back into offices now. The amount of phone calls I was getting for dogs who have got severe separation anxiety Mm -hmm. because you've got people who haven't even nipped out to buy a pint of milk without leaving the dog and all of a sudden they're going to go back into the office for nine hours a day Mm -hmm. and they've done nothing to socialise that dog. They've done nothing to um, try and make that transition easier. Mm -hmm. So... Several things happened off the back of that. Mm-hmm. Dogs were being dumped off at rescue centres mm-hmm. like they were going out of fashion. And then you were having pet care providers like us just being put upon by customers who mm-hmm. didn't understand our industry, thought that we'd come out and walk your dog for like a fiver for a couple mm-hmm. of hours, or even that we would come and sit in your house all day mm-hmm. for like the princely sum yeah. of £10 for like 10 minutes. And when they it was explained to them that, well, <laughs> minimum wage is £10.42 to begin <laughs> with. Um, and, you know you wouldn't even cover the cost of our insurance no, and fuel no. and all this sort of thing. And also if we're sat in your house, how do we earn money to live, live and eat? Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, a lot of customers who couldn't grasp that at all. It, it was really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's got to a stage now with sort of three years post-lockdown or post the first lockdown. Um, and now all those sorts of puppies that were purchased at their time are now sort of all teenager kind of age dogs who've got no manners, no training. And again, this is putting a massive pressure on the rescue centres because all of a sudden that cute little chocolate lab puppy that you brought home and you could smush his little face is now this giant gangly thing that's all arms and legs Mm -hmm. and won't sit, won't walk to heel, won't do anything and is just causing absolute chaos. Mm -hmm. And now you're back in the office and it's eating your sofa Mm because it's stuck at home. Um, So because of that, I mean, frankly, we turn away more customers than we take on. Mm -hmm. Um, If if we know that if if, if at the meet and greet it becomes apparent that that dog is going to be a complete nightmare... Mm -hmm. Um, then we don't take them on. Is it obvious? Do you realise? Oh, God, yeah. Well, it's normally because they're trying to hump your leg and um, they're they're jumping up at you. You can Mm -hmm. see the house is trashed from where they've, like, chewed all the furniture and this sort of thing. And and a lot of it it is just, frankly, people who shouldn't be owning pets. But the lockdown engineered a situation where they could, even if they'd not previously considered Mm it. And it was a real worry. It really was. And and in this country, nobody, unless you're getting a dog from a rescue centre, in which case they they do do home checks Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So we should probably go on to your business award. Mm, You can talk to me about (laughs) dogs all day. Yeah. Um, So you were recently named one of the top um, 100 inspiring business women in the UK. I was, yes. Um, How did the award come about? What tips have you got for anyone considering changing their career? And kind of what other areas of your life do you apply your entrepreneurship? Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so the award came out, it's uh, run by, uh, so it's an F entrepreneur, so a female entrepreneur award. Um, and it's run by Small Business Britain. And they are exactly what they say on the tin. They are championing small businesses around the UK. Um, 
you can um, apply for consideration for a lot of awards for a lot of things. And um, I, I vaguely remember putting in an application <laughs> uh, regarding the F Entrepreneur and, and really not thinking that it would go anywhere. And then actually several months later getting contacted and saying, actually, do you know, we've gone through all of the applications. We've looked at your business and, and you're one of our top 100, which was amazing because if you look at the other 99 women on that list... They're what I'd call proper business women. They're, <laughs> they, um, they're absolutely amazing and they're doing amazing things. Um, and the F Entrepreneur Award is particularly women who wear a lot of different hats. Um, and um, because a lot of us um, have got second jobs or uh, we're caregivers um, to like disabled family members or even moms, moms mm-hmm. and dads, because, you know, God... It, it, looking after a kid is not a difficult bit. It's getting other stuff done when you're looking after yeah. a kid. That's what I, mean, I it's can a job say. in itself, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, and, and my little boy is oh gosh, yeah, it takes up a, a, an awful lot of time, but worth every second. Bless him, mm-hmm. he's wonderful. Um, so yeah, so that's what the award was all about, really. And um, it's celebrating and championing not just small businesses, but small businesses and entrepreneurs that are female. Um, because I mean, we still got the gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, we still earn less than men. Uh, we're more likely to be passed over for, for promotion and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. So a lot of women do actually turn to self-employment and entrepreneurship because do you know what, the employed world is is not very female friendly a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and and that's the, the sad reality of where we're at. So um, those of us that do set up businesses, we need to be championed, and we need to inspire other women mm. to say, look, do you know what? You, you, this is this is a possibility for you. 